You are listening to How Bass Music Shaped British Society, a podcast series exploring the history of Jamaican sound system culture in Britain and how its legacy has revolutionised music, from sound, business and culture to people, preservation and society. All right, my name is Rodney P. Edwards, a.k.a. Rodney P., and I'm a good South London boy born in Balham in the Weir Hospital, which ain't there no more, it's the Tesco's now. In 1969. My, my parents came to England separately, they met in England. Um, my dad is from a place called Black River country. My mum is from St Anne's, which is where famously Bob Marley's from. And uh, my mum came to England as, as a young girl. Um, quite, I, not, I wouldn't say well off, they were country people, but quite, quite you know, like, they weren't ghetto country people, right? they were all right. She came and studied, and um, yeah, life, life began here. So tell me about your early life, like the circumstances, where did you live, what kind of environment? I grew up in Wandsworth. I grew up in Wandsworth, and um, originally was in Armory Way. Um, good life, I mean, single parent family. Um, I'm the youngest in my family, so I'm the youngest. I've got one, two, three, four brothers and a sister, I have to count them. Um, and I grew up as the baby of the family, obviously. Um, Mum used to work a lot. I, sp- I remember spending a lot of time with my, 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 my brothers and sisters. But it was all good. I mean, the memories of my childhood are all good. As far as I know, it was fantastic. I, yeah. Describe the kind of the makeup of the neighbourhood. Did you live in a, in a house or live on an estate? And what yeah, we lived... Was it a mixed community? Yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a mixed community. Armory Way... I mean, I guess it was a black community, but there was a mix within it. Yeah, it was a housing estate, but quite a small one. Um, Quite, it's, quite, it's quite a pretty little housing estate now, but back then, it was, it was quite rough, I guess. But it didn't, like, you just lived there. When you know when you're growing up, your environment is what you know. So coming out of it and looking back, I hear that I, I grew up in quite a rough place. But at the time, it was just where I lived, and it was cool, and all my friends was there, you know? But um, at, about, at about 10, maybe a little bit younger, we moved up to Lavender Hill in Battersea, which was really like, it felt like a step up. It felt like moving on up. Like, and, and now we had a much more space. We had a four bedroom house on Lavender Hill that no one had ever lived in before. And, and yeah, it, felt, it definitely felt different. It was an open space. We had a playground outside. I've, I've gone to a new school and yeah, it, it, it was definitely opening me up to new things, moving to Battersea for sure. Describe the music, the musical environment that you first remember like when I first started hearing music, knowing music, what was around at home? I'm yeah, for me music started as a thing that, that in a lot of ways was forced on me. I had not much say in the music that I listened to. I had my little Pinky and Perky record collection, I remember that. Sure I had something by Andy Pandy maybe that were mine, <laughs> but really I had no control over the video. I went in the house full of brothers and sisters and my mum, so my first recollections is my mum's record collection which was, you know, Sunday morning, old school Jamaican music and country and western and Jim Reeves. Like, I remember lots of Jim Reeves in my childhood and um, um, like, like West Indian church groups singing like God songs. I remember a lot of that and a bit of country and western, a bit of Tammy Winnett and thing. And then, and then obviously my brothers and sisters' music was what 
I mean, I couldn't touch the radio. I couldn't put in a tape. Like, I couldn't do anything. Whatever they were listening to is what I was listening to. But thankfully for me, I feel like I had a pretty good education. So my oldest brother, Patrick, he's a sound man. Reggae music still is. He's, he, he's one of the people who has the biggest vinyl collections that I know still to this day. And it's, that's reggae music. But then my sister Grace was more into lovers rock and you know, soul and R&B. Then I had my brothers Jeffrey and William who were very much into the, what were then the modern sounds of soul and R&B and funk. And then it would also, as I got a bit older, you know, introduce these new sounds of like, first time I heard Run DMC was my brother Jeff had got the copy of Sucker MCs. So that's the first time I was like, wow. In fact, he also got a copy of the record that I would say really got me into hip hop, really, more than any other record, was a record called um, Fresh Wild Flying Bold by the Kokosh brothers. And he got that record on vinyl and I just wore that out. I, play, I played what that to kind death. What time are we talking here? This is very beginning of the 80s? This maybe? is the very beginning of the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, maybe like 1980, 81, okay, around so about that Before we get onto that hip hop story, tell me about sound systems. You said your brother was the sound Yeah, sound systems was how, I, I, see, I kind of take it for granted. When I'm talking to people, I take it for granted. But, but that was how we all got our training, all of us, bar none. Like, we were all in sounds. And, and when I say in sounds, I don't mean name brand. We weren't all in Coxon or Saxon. I mean, locally, every kid was part of the local sound because that's what we did. This, is, this predates drum and bass or grime or even hip hop. There was none of that stuff. We had reggae music, R&B played on the sound system. And, and it, was more, it was more than just bragging about who had the best sound. It was also like, it kind of identified you. Like, you know, it, it was very much who we were. Like, I can't, it's hard for me to separate it now and say, well, it was this. Actually, because it's still me. I'm still that guy. Like, how we grew up and how we celebrated together was around the sound. You know, so it was describe that a little bit more for me. Like, first of all, na name the sound or the sounds that were around. Yeah. Secondly, just tell me how you got sucked into it. What, what happened to make to bring you into sound? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like my brothers would have been the first pulling point of call for me. So. So understanding what they were doing, first and foremost. So they're bringing in this music, they're playing this music. I'm a little kid, I want to be down. And at the weekend, they vanish off to these places. Like, I'm not old enough. And when I say to you, I was the baby of the family, genuinely, I was, I was the baby. I'm not allowed to go. So I'm at home crying because everyone else is going out. So, so you already want to like, be part of this thing that all your, your elder siblings are part of. And like, you know, you, you, you go to school and maybe a couple of your friends were allowed to go and they were talking about what they saw, but you weren't allowed to go there. So as so soon as you are of age and can go, that's the first place you want to be. And it was, it was very much not just you, it was you and your peers locally. Like, it, it, wasn't, it was never a gang, but it was almost like that kind of feeling, you know? It, it was, that was part of your family, your extended family was your, your friends in the sound. And again, for me, I was never in the same way as my brother was. My brother is a sound man, they had a sound. I was kind of a bit transient. I was kind of like, I, I kind of just rock up wherever. But locally, it was sounds like Hustler and Young Destroyer. These were the sounds of my generation. The older guys had different sounds. Um, I'm trying to think of the names now. Um, 
But see, there were so many. Let me come back to that. But there were so many. And did those sounds play only reggae? Predominantly, yeah. yeah. And, and in the early days, I mean, you would say, yeah, they were all reggae sounds. They were all reggae sounds. They may throw in a bit of lovers and a bit of something for the girls. There was no, no hip-hop or none of that stuff being played. It didn't exist yet. Reggae music. Reggae music. And, and, and at the time, reggae was very much how the community got together. It was something that we could stand around and say, this is ours. We're, we're, if you felt like you were in exile in England, we got this thing that, can, that we can all relate to and feel close to and feel warm about, you know? That was our thing. And was so. it, is it a cross-generational thing as well? I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, sound systems, you could go and see, like, the old man from your area to the youngest boy. Like, it, it was welcoming for all. And there were different elements, like, because there, are, there were younger sounds. So there's sound systems like, like Saxon sound. Oh, like, there's a t difference between Coxon and a Saxon. Like, a Coxon is a traditional Jamaican sound. Like that play Jamaican music and dub and, and you know what I mean? Jamaican sound. And a sound like Saxon was a young English sound that kind of represented different. It was, it was a, you know, it was more MCs and a different kind of energy and more braggadocious. That, that's not really, that's not, that's not so intergenerational. It was a newer thing. But a sound like Coxon, yeah man, you, you go in there and see 60 year olds down to eight year olds, like, you know what I mean? And, and also very community based. It's a very, it, it, it's not random like you could just walk along the road and walk in to see a nightclub and say, oh, I'm going to go there. It would, it would usually be like the local community centre or, you know, somewhere that was within the community rather than just on the high road. Now, sounds are very associated with areas, as you described. Mm -hmm. Did you follow a bigger sound from your area? You mentioned Saxon, but Saxon from over on the other side of town. Yeah. Uh, did you sort of align yourself with, with an area sound? I mean, Sufferers is from, from Battersea. Yeah, but for me, school days... Like, it was, it was Hustler, really, was my school sound. And that, those were the kids that I grew up with, you know? That was, that was, those were my friends. The man I used to go boys' brigade with and thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was their sound, so that was the sound. And plus, it was the sound, like I said, that most of the members were people that I shared classes with in school. So that was my sound, but I was never actually part of that sound, you know? But, you know, within that, it's like Hustler would clash Destroyer from Tootin. Hustler's the Clapham Junction sound. And, you know, Destroyer would clash whoever from Stockwell, who would clash whoever from Brixton. But if you left the area, that, that, that sense of that competition you had faded because now we're all out of town and we represent as the Junction man or the Battersea man or the South London man, you know, and that's how it would work. So they would, it was sets and subsets. It depends on where you were. Yeah. Who... What music did you really like when you, you know, what was the music that really meant something to you? You were a bit younger, you talked about music that you... you yeah, what age are we talking about? Well, the thing is, I mean, you're so young, I didn't realise you were so young. So in the early 80s, you were only you? a little teenager. I'm, I'm, I'm 47 now. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get called young very often these days, cool. Was it hip-hop that grabbed you first, or was it pop, was it... Oh, you know, you know, I, I guess, like, coming up, I always had an ear for music. I always enjoyed music, whether it was what I was being force-fed, but appreciating, or just like sneaking away to listen to Radio Luxembourg on my mum's like bedside radio. I always just, I enjoyed music. And it was pop music was the first thing, of course. But I also liked words. So I used to write poetry. When I was in primary school, I remember winning a, um, a Rotary Club of Battersea poetry competition. So when hip-hop came around, and it was this spoken word rapping thing, it just made perfect sense to me. So 
As much as I, as I grew up a fan of reggae music and I was excited when, you know, the Exodus album came out and, you know, loved James Brown before hip hop. None of those were really my thing. I was just taking a piece of all of those things. But when hip hop came around, I was stuck. That like, it became something else. Like, it, it became how I dress and how I talk and, and, and how I walk and all of that stuff, you know? Hip hop became, part of who I was, for sure. Now, could I just ask you, before we get into the details of the hip-hop, hip-hop is, is, on one hand, it's American music, mm -hmm. but actually it's got Jamaican roots, mm -hmm. as we have uncovered later on, in a way. Mm -hmm. Did you, did it seem like something totally brand new? Did it seem like something that was connected to, you, you mentioned Saxon yeah. and Fast Chat and all that, so was yeah. it something connected? How did you think about it when it came along? When it came along, I thought it was totally brand new. I remember seeing, um, Rapper's Delight. Was it Rapper's Delight? It wasn't Rapper's Delight. It was um, Hip Hop, the Hibbit, the Hibbit to the Hip Hip Hubby. Is that Rapper's Delight? Yeah, it's Rapper's Delight, yeah. And I remember seeing that on top of the pops. Yeah. And everything changed after that day. I remember going to school the next day and in the playground it was all about knowing the words to that song. It was all about that. And, and yeah, it changed. It changed. It, just, it seemed totally brand new. Years to come, you kind of realise the, 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 the similarities and the parallels in terms of the structure and the form. And then also, in, in the service it has to the community. Like, because it was going to America in a lot of ways and seeing hip hop at work in the community, they say, wow, but this is just reggae music, like in a, in a, in a different space. And I didn't make that connection until you're in New York and seeing the job it does in the community. It does the same thing we do in... in, in, in Jamaicans, West Indians, whatever, we're, we're, involved Absolutely, we're actually ingrained in how it was made. Like, it, I was, I was, I was a, a lot older before I realised that, that Grandmaster Flash and Cool Herc and all of these other guys had West Indian heritage. They were just American, you know? So you didn't make, you didn't connect those dots. But when you did, it made perfect sense because it, it, has, it does exactly the same job. I feel like hip hop and, and, and dance or reggae music is pretty much the same thing, just, you know, with different coastal accents, you know, and, and they fulfill the same job. Well, we'll get on to what the British contribution is in a minute. Okay. So tell me about getting called into hip hop culture. Mm -hmm. where, where are you seeing it? Where are you going? Are there clubs? What, yeah. What do you... I mean, early, day, early days, it was all about hearing little bits of music on the radio. And, and, and thankfully, in London, we had pirate radio. So we were able to access this other stuff that you was not going to get anywhere else because, you know, Capital and Radio 1 were not going to be playing this stuff. But pirate radio, you could access this kind of stuff. In terms of club, there was a very small scene building around this new, this new culture that we'd found. There were small clubs. Um, locally, there were little events, but there were things like sprats that Westwood would do on Oxford Street, which really became one of the hub clubs for London. I, I'm, I'm sure all over the UK it was happening simultaneously, but in London it was clubs like hubs, clubs like sprats, and Covent Garden. BBC World Service presents. This is London. <laughs> Yeah. 
when you pick it up in New York. Yo, bloody, cause it's like them and us, they're rough, they die in England. Yeah, joke, I'll play you play back then. Really, just tell them a little something. What you tell them? I tell them about the Slimmies. What Slimmies? The ones in Electric and I see them, yeah. Cause when I see them, I did a rap. What? You mean you didn't store them? You know that? I did dip, but weren't about to die through our problem. I'll believe you. Now watch the heat, we bring fever. Remember appetite? I used to mack and stalk fever with the backing. And more pop than the magic dragon. Why the split float live? Because we put the whole bag in. I remember there was a slag in my old days of blagging. Enough man to get, but we don't ban a check. So we skip, find some honey dips and we rock for the night spots. Cause that shit dropping 86. 85, 84, or whenever. I remember Mandy, she used to like never. The freak to beat, freak long before Addison when I used to ride a scooter with a Honda back man. And when we go to Tokyo to go, I was laughing at it. became like the mecca for us London hip-hop kids. I mean, there used to be a spot in, in Clapham Junction next to Super Drugs that had a smooth bit of ground and we'd go down there and we'd be out there all night. And I'd be there like, I was still kind of the youngest in the crew and I would be with like the Boogie Bunch those days. This is before they were the Boogie Bunch, like DJ Swing and, and Mad P. Like we were all like young breakers and body poppers. I was never very good at it. I was always a bit crap. But I really loved it. I really loved it. So we would do that locally 
And those guys who were a bit older than me would be telling them about the places they would go. There was a club in Tottenham called Shady Grove where they would go and, you know, um, DJ Fingers from the syndicate. And these were just names that I had heard, but I'd never been up to that point. And it was those guys, Boogie Bunch guys, who first introduced me, like people like Robert Forger or Mad P, DJ Swing. Those guys first introduced me to Covent Garden. MC Mello as well, who was then known as uh, Moomin. He was, he was a body popper. This is before he, 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 he had the, the MC career. There was a lot of people there, actually. Like, those early days, there was a lot of people who became something else later. So describe, when you say Covent Garden, you're not talking about a club, you're not talking about that. Nah, yeah. Are you about? Yeah, when I, when I talk about Covent Garden, I'm talking about actual Covent Garden where there's lots of buskers and, you know, street performers. And that used to be the, the hangout spot for the community, the hip-hop community in London. Partly because you can make money there. You could go there and start body propping and spinning on the cobbles and make a bit of money. Like, if I'm hungry, I need a burger. Let's do a show. I never did that. I was, I was the guy in the audience watching these guys thinking, wow, how can I, how can I be down? How can, how can I get involved in this, you know? So it was Covent Garden. It was also Charing Cross Tube Station. Because underground Charing Cross Tube Station was the smooth tiled floor. So that's where people would go and break and practice their moves and do whatever. And then there was also um, the centre, which was a youth club. And we used to go there and it would be us, hip-hop kids, and like then, like, you know, lots of skinheads who hang around the Western. Like these really clashes, these clashes of, of, of youth cultures would, would be in this space, the centre. And it was life for me. Like, I, mean, I remember coming home from school getting changed, getting on the 77A and getting straight to the West End. And that's where I would spend my time, amongst these people, who again, I was, I, was, I, was, I was always quite big. I was a lot heavier than I was now. I grew a beard by the time I was 12. I was told by my headmaster when I was 13 that you have to shave before you come to school. Like, I, was, I was a big kid. But I was young-minded and excited. And this scene was just, it was just so, it was everything to me. It was everything. And, and these guys were like, they were stars to me. Like, I remember seeing the London All-Star Breakers on Blue Peter. Like, that was amazing. I think I've probably still got that video. Like those days, you know, anything with any, if it had any body popping, any breakdancing, any rapping, you taped it and you made a compilation VHS of all of the bits that you could gather. And I've probably still got some of those tapes lying around in my attic now. And that was an amazing moment where these guys were really influential for a young guy like me to see like, these guys had been to America and, and, and you know, they were, they were making videos and, you know, performing on big stages and... In terms yeah. of the makeup of that group, um, was, it, was it a black thing? Was it, a, was it mixed? Yeah. Was it a lot of, you know, did the West Indian community, West Indian, like Afro-Caribbean, mm. was that prominent within that? It was mostly it was mostly black kids I was hanging out with, but hip hop came to UK as, and I've had this conversation and, and it's, it's, a, it's an argument, but to my mind, as much as all the exponents of hip hop, most of the exponents of hip hop we saw were black, it never really came to England as black culture, to me, you know, it came to England as youth culture, so. As much as me and all of my black friends were doing it, everybody was doing it, you know? So Covent Garden wasn't, wasn't uh, about the black experience. It was the hip hop. If you love this thing, this is where you need to be. So it's black kids, white kids, black girls, white girls, Chinese kids, Indian kids who loved this thing. Greek guy, Turkish guy, like, and, and it was very much a melting pot. And, and how, I describe, how I describe Covent Garden in those times was Switzerland. 
it was Switzerland. It was neutral territory. So it was very much, if I'm a South London kid in North London, that could be a problem. If I'm a you know, East London kid in West London, that could be a problem. But if I make it to Covent Garden, it's all good. Because it doesn't matter where we come from. And once we get here, we, we, we share this appreciation for this culture that we love so much. How, how is the relationship with the forces of law and order? Or how did they, I mean, in a way, it's part of the tourist industry. And, yeah. You know, were you, you know, was there trouble with that? Or? There were elements of that. I, I, don't think, I don't think, as much as I can look back and say, yeah, the police were fuckery and they used to cause us arguments and they used to want to antagonise you to get a reaction. As much as I can say, yeah, that's true. Looking at it in hindsight, well, we'd never be able to do anything like that now. So we must have been given some kind of leeway. Because I can't imagine 30 kids in, in one of the prime locations in London being able to hang out all day and all night. Because we even moved from Covent Garden, and as the sun went down, we'd go over to Leicester Square. And in Leicester Square, we could hustle, maybe sell a bit of ash or a bit of liquish wrapped up in cellophane and call it hash or whatever. You know what I mean? That was part of the hustle. And I can't imagine that being allowed to happen today. So as much as we did have issues with police and there were fights and there was people getting chased and there was bits of criminality, that was never really the focus. It was never the focus. The focus was always, more than anything else, this hip-hop culture that we loved and the fact that we could also make a bit of legal money because a lot of these guys were well-paid buskers. So how, what, 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 what drew you in? You described yourself like watching the breakdancers, not, not being a breaker. Mm. What was your, how, what took you into being a lyricist and how did that come about? Well, I got into hip hop through the culture and, and the visuals of it that I would see. Seeing the, seeing, seeing the, the Malcolm McLaren Buffy Old Girl video was really exciting for me. Um, but, so I, I was drawn into the culture that way. I was already a fan. I liked body popping, I liked break, breaking, but I wasn't very good at it, but I was already a fan. And in the UK, those were the elements that got here first. Like, it was all about, you know, the dancing, body popping and break dancing. And, and the music was very different. It was electro. It was, it was, you know, wiki, 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 and all that kind of stuff. Smurf. Smurf and E.T. Boogie and like, which, which for me is this classic stuff. I, I, I you know, I sweat a little bit and you <laughs> need to play that now. That's my stuff. But when rap music came to the forefront, I really found my way because of the love I already had for wordplay. I'd already been writing my little rhymes, not, not as raps, but they were my, you know, my little poems and stuff. And I was a lot more proficient at that. I was good at that. And I could do my little rap and get, wow, oh, you're really good. I like, you know, and my mate would do a bit of beatboxing. And, and so once I found a lane within the culture that I could operate in, that was it, that was, that was me, done. <laughs> for real and, and I, I, there's never been a point since then that I felt like doing something else like this is what I do even like there's been times when I've like this and always been my career I fell into this as a career but it would always be something I do if there if the time came for me that I couldn't make any money or couldn't go on tour couldn't do another show and I was doing some job that I hated I would still go home and write and probably write a few bars sitting on the train get a little rap in my head that's just become who I am and then yeah, that became when, when, when the, the, the style of rapping came to the forefront in the UK. When, when more than just body popping, it was tell, more tell about, about that music. moment. British rap was criticised initially for being too dependent on America, yeah. on American models, American actors. Yeah. Tell me, was it like that? And yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the early, the early, the early days of, of UK hip hop music. <laughs> 
in a lot of ways are quite embarrassing because this career is pretty poor. But it's part of the learning curve. You know, you, you jump on here and then you, you learn. So because we felt like it was this whole new thing and we hadn't made the connection between what we already did, we just copied it. So everybody bar no one. I don't know anyone who rapped in the English accent throughout the 80s. Everyone had a fake American accent. Yo, son, me and my homies, and we went to the... You know what I mean? And we all had that. Respected, just for licking the text 
sailing and sailing Let's stick to sailing Cause it's more appealing than dreaming Of the beer and mercs Whenever having them Seeing opportunities They be grabbing them Charlie Then we'll get it from them and take the trouble to Go and look at her, not to them gone money, man Be a rock pocket, you owe our life is a drag Singing out the alley, then I'm a dolly from the rat From the big time money, then them drop it, bad, bad, bad What next terrorists are gonna die fire Where they go? I go fight a yard or them a lick a bank Them a moving at the massive, them a driving at the marble Stealing buckets or doors that they get stabbed, see? Money, man, them gone money, man, man And that was how it was for a while. So, I mean, it's hard to be credible with a fake accent. You know, it's hard. So a lot of a lot of a lot of my peers didn't get into hip hop. Like I'm, a, I'm from Battersea, which is a very which de- at that time was a very black community. So a lot of my my other friends, well, we're not into this thing. We're into reggae music. That thing's a joke thing. Like it's a copy thing. We're not into that thing. You know. Few of them would come to the parties and whatever, but never really took on and it never really connected with them in the same way it connected with me. Um, and it, and, and the, the early releases coming out, groups like Phase One, Phase One Laying Down a Beat was put out by Morgan Khan. Um, Dizzy Heights put out the Christmas rapping and Nutriment put out London Bridges Falling Down, which had rapping on it, but was a very more of an electro kind of tune. And they were still very much the American format the blueprint, the fake accent, very much that. And I was very much a part of that, you know? I had the fake accent and I had the, the goose and the kango and I had all of that, I was a hip hop kid. But early on, in going to America, you discover, it's pretty stupid, really, pretty stupid. And, and that, because I, I went to America, I went to America with my mum when I was like 13, and then I went back as part of the group I was in when I was like 16. And those two trips really changed everything. Because the first trip, the first trip, I was still a young boy wanting to be down. So I kind of attached myself to the American culture the first time. And came back even more hip hop, you know? Like I had the name belt buckle and the shells. So I was even more of like, but I was celebrated for that. But by the time I went back the second time, my ground had shifted. I, I, I had linked up with my partner then, who was my musical partner, who was Bionic, from, from the London Posse. We had formed the good London Posse. We had been on tour and started performing in front of audiences and had decided by then that we needed to find a way to represent who we are within hip-hop in a more authentic way. And that's what we had started the process of doing, but we hadn't quite worked out how to do it yet. Can I just ask you, were you aware of Smiley Culture as a senator and what they That's done? exactly what I was about to come to. Please, sorry, please do. Right. Start from the beginning of that. Statement. Right, so the, the, the reason we had come to that conclusion was partly from, from going to America, but also 
it was a mentality that already existed within the sound system culture. And we were still very much more a part of that because that was still the biggest thing within the communities we grew up in. So at that time, within, within sound system culture, it was about the new sounds, Young Lion, Saxon, Unity. These new sounds that were coming up, very MC-led, probably still managed and owned by an old Jamaican, but giving the young local youth them a chance to come up and represent themselves. And a lot of these guys had a different mentality. Like people like, like, like one of, who's now my good friend, like, which is, sounds funny to say, but I was such a fan. But people like Tipper Irie and, 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 and Philip Levi and their man there on Saxon had a mentality that we are black British descendants from Jamaica, but we're not Jamaican. So it's important that we can represent our UK sound and vibes in the dance or music that we make, that they were making within reggae music. We took that mentality as London Posse. We took that direct mentality and said, we're going to do that in hip hop. Because that's what we need to do. We make hip hop, but I'm not American. I'm not from the Bronx. I'm not from Brooklyn. We need to show where we come from. So what me and the, the first conversations me and Bionic had when we got together was, we need to do this that sounds like us which was always going to be hip-hop reggae. So London Posse, which is credited as being the first group to use an authentic UK accent within hip-hop music, was always, the idea was always we're a hip-hop reggae group because that's what we have to be. If we're going to make hip-hop, we have to be a hip-hop. There's nothing else we can be because that, that's what it has to sound like. But that was a, an, an idea taken directly from UK sound system culture. So with that, what we would do originally was, I would do a bit of, of Yankee rapping, American rapping, yeah, and I'm with my homie and my dog, and then Bionic would do a bit of Jamaican, yeah, old boy, I did it. And we were almost like caricatures, you know? And, and, and what happened is that over time, I was less American, he was less Jamaican, and we just found our own voices. It was, it was the next trip to New York for me. Like, Bionic was already further down the road, but for me, it was the next trip to New York why this, this is dead. Like, it was, it was actually stupid that we'd be in New York rapping in these fake American accents, and that'd be cool, we're in the side from a rapping, oh, everyone's happy. And then I'd say, excuse me, bruv, where's the shop? Where can I get a packet of Rizla from? And everyone, oh my God, where are you from? You know, and we're like, well, why the fuck, why, why are we faking their accent when our accent gets so much better a response? What the hell are we doing? You know, like, and, and we took that home. Let's just do it as us. And, and that's really where we formed the style as London Posse, just be us. And, and saw how effective it was. Can you just give me an example of a lyric which represents that time? I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I've asked before. In, in what way do you mean it represents that the time? The sound, I mean, it's, I always, whenever I hear you, it's, it sounds so English. Yeah, I, well, I, I, honestly, I don't remember the lyric word for word. But if you listen to London Posse's first record, yeah. Um, I, I, I say, on the way to 42nd, we were on 46, I, I, I say it with a very American twang, yeah. because although I'd all decided to lose the accent, I didn't know how to yet. Like, working out how to rhyme in my own accent was a whole new job. Like, the, the words don't flow the same. Like, you, you had to think about it more. I had to, it was all I had to think about it more. But that was a blessing, because it also gave me and us our style, which was a unique style that set us above the crowd, you know? So, yeah, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to think of a lyric from 30 years ago, but there was definitely a twang within my voice that doesn't exist now. It's funny you mentioned twang, I was just about to mention black twang. Right. It, so, it started something, 
What, yeah. what happened after that? Because it seemed to open up a new possibility within yeah. British hip hop and, and a British hip hop reggae sort of. Yeah, well, well, one of the things it did, I feel like, is that it opened up the audience a bit. Because at the time, we were on tour with a group called Big Order Dynamite by then. And um, we hadn't actually put out a record, but we had this, this concept that we wanted to get out. And um, so we'd started promoting this UK sound, this UK, we got to represent where we're from, and you know, we got to start doing this. And by the time we started putting out music, it was, it, it was an argument within the scene. Like, a lots of people felt like, no, it's hip hop, it's supposed to sound American. In the same way, like, you don't hear much reggae music without a Jamaican accent. If it's reggae, it's gonna be in a Jamaican accent, no matter where they come from. And people felt the same about hip hop. But we didn't. We've, um, we, we strongly didn't. And, and it wasn't universally accepted. Like, London Posse is a group. Now we're kind of held up as the starting point. But at the time, the, the, the traditional hip-hop kids weren't into us. Like, we were finding audiences in, in, in like, skinhead groups. And, like, people who liked the specials or the beat were into London Posse because they already had an understanding of that accent and that language within the music. They didn't have an understanding of that American stuff and that fake Yankee stuff. We don't want to hear that. But we can listen to you because it makes sense to who we are, you know? So, so, so in terms of opening up the audience, it brought in a different kinds of people. Into okay, let's where is this hip hop thing? Like because we're now using our own accent, but it, it still took a good ten years before what we were doing was the norm. We were still the abnormal ones. What's the? It sounds odd. It sounds weird. I remember speaking to Benjamin Zephaniah and him saying that when he first heard it, it sounded odd. Like it, sound, it sounded fake. But actually, the realisation, though actually all of that other stuff was fake, that's the real, because that's what they actually sound like. But it took a long time. I remember being in, in parks and in ciphers and jams with, with some of your leading lights in the music at the time, arguing about what the music should sound like. And, and thankfully, it feels like 30 years later it was an argument that we won, because now it would seem ridiculous for a kid who's making, say, grime or you know, one of the new hip hop records to come out with a fake accent. They'd be laughed out of the room, off the radio, off the corner. That's not gonna work. But back then, we were the ones who had to fight to speak in our own accents. So it's, it's, it's been a turnaround, but it's been a worthwhile one, Tell for sure. Tell me about your interactions with your experience with the music industry. You've been signed to various labels yeah. at various times. Yeah. Just give me a brief sort of summary of, how, of that, and also I'm interested in how, whether you feel that you were well treated, or was the music well supported? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the industry, our, our, first, our first interaction with the, with the industry was signing to Big Life Records, which was run and owned by our first manager, Jazz Summers, and, and another guy named Tim Parry, who probably still runs it now, who, who, who really kind of gave us an opportunity, you know? Because what had happened is that we, we had went to New York and came back. And, and, and did another tour with Big Audio Dynamite. They really took us under their wings. And Big Audio Dynamite was, was Mick Jones from The Clash. That was his new band. And Don Letts, who was um, a video filmmaker and a musician, that was their band. And they really championed us. But again, even them, as we're on these tours and going to America, I'm still not thinking about this as my career. This is just one of those things I do. Like, the first tour, when it came right, I was on a YTS scheme. I was getting 30 pound a week on a YTS scheme. I didn't think I'm gonna be a rapper. I love this rapping stuff and I love this hip hop stuff, but I'm not going to ever be able to make any money out of it, really. I'm going to have to think about, you know, going to do an apprenticeship or 
going to the post office or doing something. And on the second tour, Jazz Summers came to one of the shows and off the back of him coming to the show, we were offered a contract. We had no clue about, we'd never been in the studio before. We'd never tried to make a record before. We just love hip hop and like to rap and we got a DJ who can scratch beats. So we don't really need anything else. And, you know, so that process was, was totally alien to us. Um, I remember being given a list of, who do you want to produce your record? We didn't even know, like, like what does a producer do on a record? What, what does that actually, we, we, we were totally green, had no idea. And the list of names was all names we didn't know and Tim Westwood. So we said, yeah, Tim, let Tim do it, because we really knew him. He was, he was foundation in the hip hop scene, let Tim do it. So that's how he gets production credits on the record. But really, we all just went in, we had a pile of records, DJ Business, who was our DJ at the time, and Westwood kind of worked out, we could loop this bit, and it was very, very like amateurish production, but we felt like it represents us in some way, shape or form. Because again, the first record we made was hip hop reggae. So we took a reggae bass line, we took a meters drum break, and, and mashed it all together. And it sounded like something new, even to us, because People weren't making hip-hop reggae like that back then. And industry-wise, those early days, it felt like we were in a, in a good space. But you, you, you quickly learn there's, there's things within this industry that work against you. One of the things was, how come your manager owns your record label? Like, conflict of interest. I've never come across the term conflict of interest before. Like, I'm 16 these times. Like, I've really just left school. I'm not in the world really yet. Yeah. And true they carry gats, the feds is on their backs. 
time is cold when you look at it. Never would have figured him to end up in that crooked shit. Things in time change like rhyme. It used to be now it's all about crime. Remember that line? One time for your mind. Nowadays it's 16 shots from a nine. For me, things in time change like rhyme. We used to now it's all about crime. Remember that line? One time for your mind. Nowadays it's 16 shots from a nine. Change like rhyme. If you would have took the time, you could have seen the sign. Instead of that, you try to act like you're blind and wicked things come and take you from behind. But still, we don't need no fuckery, you idiot. We don't need no cocaine, we split swimming. Only put only pour you, them blood spilling. Only put only pour you, them love killing. It's y'all a rude boy that's God willing. A man will get his mind fixed up like penicillin. It's all for a you to switch and start chilling. When is every day you look in the mirror, you see the some money has to bring it. Gone go get the two gun and gone a gun sling it. Try to do a thing on the police boy sting it. Man is underneath the bottom of the jailer when they fling it. Things in time, prayers and carols singing. Changing to weed, more crime and more sinning. Big spliff billing reminiscing on them days when the youth them never knew that the truth was crime phase. But hey, things in time change like rhyme. It used to be. Now it's all about crime. Remember that line? One time for your mind. Nowadays it's 16 shots from my Change like rhyme, we used to. And now it's all about crime. Remember that line? One time for your mind. Nowadays it's summer smoke blunts till I'm blind for rain. Yeah, yeah. It's how we do it. Things in time for rain. So yeah, instantly you start to learn about these things that you need to be aware of. So we put out the first record with Big Live and then in, they offered us a new contract for an album deal and all of this stuff, but there was this conflict of interest that we've now discovered. Because we were young and stupid, but not dumb. Like we were smart enough to ask a question, like how does this work? I remember like my mum being in the local paper and found a music business solicitor um, and took me there sat down, it ended up being Sheridan's, who were like a huge music business law firm, but we, I had no clue. And they really were, oh, this young guy, and they took me in, and I, they were my lawyers for years. So we were able to ask the question. So instantly you find out, okay, there's a lot of shysty, snakish stuff that goes on. But we were just so happy to be there, you know? So after the big life deal fell apart, it didn't fall apart, we kind of walked away, we said, we're not gonna mug ourselves. Like, we're not gonna mug ourselves. We were kind of in the wilderness for a while. That's when we went back to Westwood. Westwood was our friend. We were always, Westwood would use those times, he would take us to shows and we'd perform while he's DJing and stuff like that. He was our mate. And he was in the process of setting up his own record label, which was Justice Records at the time. So we put out a record with him, which was Money Man. By the time we made Money Man, as opposed to the original record, London Posse, we had really formed a style. We knew who we were, what we were doing, and how we wanted to do it. We knew what we wanted to sound like. So, sonically, Money Mad and the original record are a mile apart. They're both hip-hop reggae records, but one was really amateurish and novice-like, and Money Mad really set the blueprint 
for what this hip hop reggae thing sounds like. Even today, like Money Mad is the record. And, and by then, we'd had a couple of years in the wilderness holding our skill and we were now rapping as us. When you hear that record, you hear me, you hear Bionic, and you hear this voice that I'm speaking in, you hear that on there. But now I can flow good. Now I've got bars, as they say, you know what I mean? And that record, more than even sold in the first one, the first record started the conversation, but that record changed the ground. Like, it, it changed how it worked, because now everyone else could say, oh, that's how you do it. So now you had a, a real choice to make. Do we want to be fake? Or, or do we want to be authentic? Because we had that authentic UK hip-hop reggae sound by then. And yeah, the ground definitely shifted. Um, we're still an independent group then. We're independent, so, so we're not really interacting with the, the larger industry. Like, you know, we've just got this independent record out that's doing really well. And doing really well across the board, not just locally amongst our friends. This, is, this record has taken us all over the country and into Europe. So, again, UK hip hop, it's a roller coaster ride. So we put out Money Mad, we had all this, 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 for us, great success, but in the big scheme, minor success. And Kanye was back in the wilderness. And then, I don't know how much time it got, but then my sister, right, my sister has a daughter, my niece, Chantel. Chantel's dad is a guy named Errol Samuels. He used to be the tour manager for Aswad, yeah? So a day, I saw Errol and I've got this London Posse tape. I said, yeah, hold this tape. I'm, I'm, like, wait, I'm just hustling, thinking, I know you're an industry dude. Like, play, take this tape and play it for your mates. And luckily for us, Errol, who didn't like it at all, thought, what's this foolishness? <laughs> what is this fool of these young boys shouting over this foolishness? He took it into Island Records today. He just had a meeting in there, like they was in there to talk about whatever. And he played the tape in the office. And Suzette Newman and John Boulder was there. And a guy named Mikey Hiroots, who was the A&R for Mango Records at the time. And they were putting out people like Overlord X. And Overlord X had had a big record with um, 14 Days in May, which was about um, a guy on death row that was, was accompanied by a documentary and stuff. So he was doing really well. But he was a very much still the American sound, it sounded very much like public enemy, fake American accents, but they were doing really well. And they played our tape in there and they were like, we've been looking for these guys. Like, you know, we've, these guys, bring them in. So next time I saw Errol, he was like, okay, you know, I've got something to tell you. I'm your manager now and we've got a meeting next week. And that's kind of how we got taken into Ireland for the first time. And if I'm honest, I hear a lot of people say that they had terrible experiences with major record labels and they robbed them and they skanked them and they this, that, the third. And we never really had that story, if I'm honest. Like that, they treated us really well. And I guess it's it because Mango was a subsidiary of Ireland. It wasn't Ireland itself. It was, it, was, it, was, it was predominantly a world music label. Salif Kato and um, um, lots of world music artists. Again, I, my memory's not what it should be. And then they had like, people like Overdorex as a sideline thing. But they didn't have, I guess, the pressure to sell 100,000 records. They were, it was a very much like, you know, a love thing. Like, we're just gonna put out the stuff we like because we like it. And that's where we did our first album, the Gangster Chronicle album, we did there in a very warm environment for us. And 
it was in the island building where we call it in the fallout shelter where Grace Jones and Bob Marley and you know I'm going into the canteen and seeing the edge from you two eating like porridge or whatever you know like it was very much that environment so I felt like now we're feeling like part of the industry but we're also being treated really well and quite fairly so it was good it was good while the, while the journey in there lasted it was good I've made a lot of good friends that I still have from that time but there came a point where we'd put out the first record, we had achieved a level of success. And when it came time to do the new record, they were like, well, we can't offer you any more money. We'll, we'll do the record for you, but we can't offer you any more money. And we can't really offer you much more in terms of promotion, budget and stuff. But we'll happily do the record for you. Or we'll let you go and we'll give you everything back. Which again is kind of unheard of, especially then. Like, which when I have to say, they treated us really good. And we decided to leave because we, we felt like we'd reached the place where we deserved a bit more. Not that we were demanding, but we deserved a bit more. We'd, we'd done that groundwork. So we left and, and, and they were true to their word and gave us back to the rights to everything we would release with them. That's why I've, re I've released Gangster Chronicle album three times since then, <laughs> you know, because of the blessing of them giving us back the rights. It's been able, I've been able to help re-energize the UK scene by putting it out, but then also re-energize my own career by putting it out. So I'm thankful for them for that. I, 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 I'm more than aware of the, the snakishness and the skullduggery that goes on within the music industry. But thankfully, in that window, we managed to avoid the majority of that stuff. When we left Ireland, we again set up our own label, which was Bullet Records at the time. We were very independent-minded even then. This was a time when there, wasn't, there weren't really very many independent record labels. Um, drum and bass had just really started finding its feet. So now these drum and bass labels were setting up. But there weren't really many independent UK hip-hop labels. But we just kind of had that do-for-self mindset. So we went and set up the label and we put out another record that was really successful for us, which was How's Life in London. So we put that out ourselves, which became probably our most successful record at the time. So again, avoiding the industry, per se. Um, I, I mean, maybe this isn't, isn't what you're looking for, but so, so for us, and, and for me, as I explained to Michael earlier, actually, I've always kind of existed on the edges of the industry. I've never, I've never been particularly good at networking or fake smiling or none of that stuff. And I know lots of industry folks, but I don't really get involved in that. So... I, I, I put my foot in, like I've worked with lots of labels over the years, but I'll go in on an individual deal, I may put out a record, I may work with one of their artists, I may do a project for them, but I always step back out. So I, I don't have the industry horror stories that lots of people have, but it also means that I've never had the big check that a lot of people have had. This is somehow related to the sound system mentality yeah. way back there, isn't it? To the yeah. idea yeah, of yeah. independence. Yeah, yeah. No one can't control me, I can't let no one own me, and I, can't, I don't want to feel like an employee for these people. And plus, the music was never, it was never, those early days, like I said, it was never the thing I felt that I was going to make a million pounds from. For me, it was always more, almost like my therapy. I needed it to be pure, <laughs> you know? I, I couldn't allow it to be tainted Let's from outside force. You talked about drum and bass there, which is, if your music was hip-hop reggae, mm -hmm. another way of describing drum and bass is hip-hop reggae, or yeah. a different... Yeah. So yeah. And then, and you mentioned grime earlier, so mm -hmm. just thinking about the continuing influence of what we're calling bass culture, mm -hmm. right? But basically Jamaican musical 
on British music? Yeah. How, how influential is it? I think when you look at like, the influence Jamaican music has had on, especially English, as an Englishman and me sitting there, especially what we do in the UK, it's in everything. All of it comes from the little sound system culture back home. All of it, in terms of how we, we talk on the mic, how, how we, we perform on stage, how we play music, how we produce music, how we feel about the music. It all comes from there. And, and that's across the board. So if you're talking about hip-hop, pardon me, hip-hop in, in its pure form is a form of Jamaican dancehall music that got, got took to America and changed. When we got it in England, we changed it again and put it closer back to what it originally was without even knowing we were doing that because we, we weren't aware, you know? And then... If you're talking about drum and bass, again, there's an argument to be had, but for me, a lot of ways, the, the, the forming of drum and bass comes through hip-hop being sped up, the speed getting a lot harder, and then putting it back with some reggae music. And now you've got drum and bass. You know? Same with grime, that, that take, is an extension of what we did. The, 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 the sound of two-step UK garage that is different from American house, and how that music is played and represented with the MCs comes from Jamaica. The, you listen to grime now and these grime MCs are all clashing and, you know, it's, it's about bars and, you know, that whole, that whole, that whole presentation of it. Straight from the dance hall. You listen to, like, you know, listen to Sting 1992 or, you know, whatever, Reggae Sunsplash 1986. You'll see the, the seeds of grime. That's, that's the form it's taken. So it, it, when, you, when you bring it to England, it gets a little remix, you know? You get a little remix, you know? It's like... And, and I've said this a lot over the years. For me, growing up in, in England, but especially London, as, as someone into music, is the greatest blessing because London is the biggest melting pot musically in the world. I've been to every major city on the planet, pretty much. And, and there's good music in all of them, but not like London because London gets it all, all of it. There's places in, in, in across Europe that don't get much Jamaican or Senegalese or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But in England, you get every flavour. If there's a spice, it's in that pot. It's, it's like the, 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 the most, most flavour-filled gumbo you could imagine is made in London, England, musically. Because everything comes here, it's thrown into pot, stirred up and, and sent back out into the world. And, yeah, and, and history tells us that. If you look at like, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, and you know, what we do and what, like, what, any of this stuff, you know, it, it's, it's variations of stuff that we've remixed and sent back into the world. And we, and, and we do that better than anyone, I think. Can I ask you how you think about it in relation to the term black music? I mean, it's black music. Why people make it, listen to it, involved yeah. in it. Yeah. How do you think about it at the moment? In this I call music? it black music. I call it black music. But I call it black music because I'm well aware of the fact that it's made by everybody. It's not only made by black people. And, but I think, I think it's important that we, we give it that name. And the reason I think it's important because we because traditionally black people lose so much. We lose so much. Like rock and roll is, is Elvis Presley music. But no, if you dig a little harder... That was, that was originally ours, and it's not to say that we're holding it because we're selfish and don't want no one to share, but actually, give us some fucking credit. Give us the credit that we deserve. We've, we've, we've put so much in and get so little out that that's black music. So when I hear the term urban, and I was working in radio at the time, that's offensive to me. It's not, it's not urban. It's not, that's not the right title because... Like, you can't call it black music because white kids make it too. Well, then you can't call it urban because country kids make it too. 
you know? And so suburbs. And suburbs and, and everywhere in between, <laughs> you know? So I don't have a problem with, with it being called black music, but over the years I've seen that a lot of people do have, a, have, have an issue with that, that I'm not sure of the motivation for. But for me, it's black music. It's, it, 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 it's, it's very much, you know, black culture. And, and again, it isn't about we make it in this form and you have to replicate that. No, it goes into the melting pot. That's where it's supposed to go. You know what I mean? It goes into the pot. So fuck with it and send it out to us in a new shape, but recognize the origins of it. And, and, and that is the reason why people like me are so loud and, 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 and aggressive and assertive when we say it's black music. Not because you're not allowed to do it, but we demand our recognition for it.